Open your Bible to the 23rd chapter of the book of Acts, if you have your Bible with you. Jesus promised that in this world we'd have trials. But he also said, take courage, be courageous, because I've won the battle, I've overcome the world. Now, some of you may be attempting to live for the Lord and find that you even now are in the midst of a trial. I mean, and it can cause you to lose focus, maybe even lose sleep, and uh, question your faith, question God's goodness, and say, I didn't sign up for this. What's happening? And, and wondering uh, what's coming down the pike next. When we left the Apostle Paul last week uh, on Temple Mount, he was in the Roman barracks, and he may have had some of those kind of thoughts. Because, I mean, he had just completed his third successful missionary journey. He got back to Antioch, comes up to Jerusalem, and his hope and his plan was to go on from Jerusalem up to Rome and then on over to Spain, where he wanted to have his fourth missionary journey. But it didn't turn out as he'd hoped or planned. Because you remember in the temple courts, uh, there were some Asian Jews who stirred up the crowd. A riot ensued. They grabbed Paul, accusing him of all kinds of things. And they were severely beating him when uh, the Roman commander sent a detachment down from the fortress above. And they forcibly extracted Paul from that crowd and that beating and were pulling him up the steps when Paul asked for permission to speak to the Jews in the courtyard below. It was all going okay. They were listening intently until he mentioned that this risen Lord Jesus had told him to go and speak to the Gentiles who were far off. And they went ballistic. Man, the, the soldiers had to drag him on up the steps. They took him into the barracks. They stretched him out. They were about to scourge him when Paul asked the commander, is it legal to, to flog a Roman who's uncondemned? No, it's not. And this commander got scared, had him released, and he made the decision that the next day he would bring him down before the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, where uh, he'd find out what the accusations were. Paul was in one trial after another through these days in, recorded in the book of Acts. But in the midst of the trial, something happened that infused courage into him, which would enable him to conduct himself with dignity and strength in the trials that would come. I think that's really important because some of you may right now be in the midst of a trial, and if you're not, there's probably one coming down the road, and uh, we have the same opportunity available that Paul availed himself of in the midst of that trial. And I want us to look at that in Acts chapter 23. There's an outline in your bulletin, and uh, I want to just put it this way. When we're beaten up in our quest to live for Christ, it's in that situation that sometimes we realize that we've not lived up to our profession. We've not been the kind of Christian we could have been or should have been, and maybe that's, we're thinking, part of the reason why we've been beaten up, why our plans aren't working out. As I say, Paul could have had some of those thoughts. In verse 1 of chapter 23, it says, Paul, looking intently at the council, now he's in the Sanhedrin before the Jews, 
and said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Sound like a fair trial, right? It was actually against the law to do that. By the way, when Paul said that he had lived before God with a clear conscience up to this day, he wasn't claiming to be perfect. In other places, he called himself the chief of sinners. He just meant that he had always sought to honor and please God. Even when he was persecuting Christians, he thought he was serving the Lord. And then now, as a follower of Christ, he was doing the same. But uh, the high priest told the guy beside him to strike him in the mouth. How did Paul respond? Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Wow, pretty strong language to the high priest. Kind of reminds us of what Jesus said to the religious leaders when he said that they were whitewashed tombs. He told them that to their face. Now they knew about the tombs outside of Jerusalem and in various parts of the country. They washed them with whitening because they didn't want to touch him or else in their strict law they would be defiled. And he said, you're just like those whitewashed tombs. He said, you look good on the outside, you're all religious, but inside you're just full of dead men's bones. Well, Paul basically said that to the high priest here, and uh, he was angry. Ananias was the high priest from about 47 A.D. to 59, and the historian Josephus says he was absolutely corrupt. He received bribes continually. He used violence regularly on people. The Jewish nationalists hated him because of his policies regarding Rome, But Paul's prediction that God would strike him were actually fulfilled within 10 years. There was a Jewish revolt in the city. Uh, Ananias fled to Herod's palace in the northern part of the city. And it was there that the Romans found him, brought him out, and along with his brother Hezekiah, killed him right there. But what was going on here? I mean, some scholars say Paul didn't recognize him when he said what he did. In fact, uh, the bystanders were shocked. Uh, They said to him, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Was he aware that he was the high priest? Some people say, Yeah, maybe not. I mean, he hadn't been in Jerusalem for a while. He'd been out on those missionary journeys. But I think more... Credible scholars have it right when they say, hello, of course he knew he was the high priest. They're in the chambers of the Sanhedrin. He had the high priest's robes on. He was seated in the chair of the high priest. Paul had been a member of that body. He knew exactly who he was. This was sarcasm. Uh, In essence, he was saying, I wouldn't expect a high priest to act this way, uh, violating the law in a trial. But then Paul pivots. And he takes another tack, and it says, in perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Paul knew that this Sanhedrin was comprised of Sadducees, the bulk of them, 
and the Pharisees. But the Sadducees were very liberal. And by this time, they didn't even believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels, Luke said, or spirits. They didn't believe in resurrection. And so the, sad, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in all of those. So Paul was exploiting their differences when he cried out, I'm on trial here for the hope of the resurrection. And immediately it split them right down the middle. I mean, there was chaos that, that resulted. And uh, finally some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and said, hey, we don't find anything wrong with this guy because they too believed in the resurrection. Think of it in modern terms of Democrats and Republicans and the partisanship. What if you were to walk onto the Senate floor and say, I am here for the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. You know, you'd have a split right there. Well, we do have, right? Well, that's the way it was in the Sanhedrin. They were politically aligned, more than religiously aligned, actually. And it was a real problem, and Paul just exploited the differences that they had. But I want to go back to his response to uh, what had happened. By the way, uh, when, when chaos ensued, the commander had to have him taken back up to the barracks, and he had to wait some more. But let's go back to his remark to the high priest, where he called him a whitewashed wall. What was he thinking at that point? Was that righteous indignation? Maybe. But I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think he lost it. I think Paul just saw the hypocrisy in that situation and in that high priest, and he couldn't remain silent. He just lost it, and he blurted that out. You know what I think? I think Paul was made of the same stuff as we are. He was human. Sometimes we elevate these uh, people in Scripture so high, but actually, look at Peter. Look at the flaws and foibles that are just set forth in Scripture. They were like us. Now, I may be wrong, but I think Paul just kind of lost his cool there. Have any of you ever done that? Been frustrated, angry, especially in the midst of a trial, and just said something you wished you hadn't said? Uh, I wanted to illustrate that, so I thought maybe I would share a few examples out of Robert's life. Just kidding, Robert. Okay. <laughs> he could share out a few out of my life. Okay. Um, but I'll tell you a couple in my own life. One of them happened many years ago when I was way less mature than I am now. And uh, we had just moved into this condominium building. And uh, there I read, it said in the bylaws, no pets allowed. And so we went to our first annual gathering of the owners. And uh, so I brought a proposal. And in that proposal, I said, I don't even plan to own a pet, but I think we ought to allow pets, especially for the elderly in the building. And we could have a size regulation and no barking policy or you get evicted. Not, not you, but the pet and such. And so I set it forth. And it just divided that group right there. Some were arguing for, some against. And then a lady who'd been there the longest in the building had a lot of clout. She said, no way. And I have votes from other owners and we can, you know, it isn't going to happen. Oh, okay. So the next year I brought my proposal again and it, same thing. And then the third year, but I went to her door and knocked on it. And I said, I just want you to know I'm bringing my proposal again to the meeting tomorrow night. And she said... Oh, you know, you knew when you came into this building that we didn't allow pets. I said, yeah, I knew that. But remember, 
when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, he knew that slavery was the law of the land, but he wasn't going to accept that it not be changed. That didn't win friends and influence people. <laughs> and so Dee told me later, my wife Dee, she said, Ron, choose your battles. We're here to witness for the Lord, not to cause problems. I said, okay, okay. So that was a long time ago. Two weeks ago, uh, I was up in the center of the island and uh, had a, an issue take place. Some of us play golf nine holes a week over on Fort Shafter, and it's an army base, and you need a pass to get on there. Well, there's an office you can go to at Lelehua Golf Course, and, and you can actually get a pass. But the stories that we share among fellow golfers are notorious about the inefficiency, the rudeness, and it's just like, are you kidding? The things that happen in that office. Um, and so I'd gone up there a couple weeks ago, and uh, I got in there, and there were three people behind the computers, and they said, we're not going to help you because the computer systems are all down. Okay, really? Yeah, sorry, come back in a week. I said, okay. So a week later, I go up there, and by the way, don't ever show up at 3.20. It says right on the door, we close at 3.30, so no one served after 3.20. And, uh, but anyway, it's 10.30 in the morning, and I thought, I'm good. This has got to be good. They may take a lunch break, but it's 10.30. And then I see a big sign on the door, closed from 11 to 12. I thought, okay, but I still got 30 minutes. And I go in, and there's four people in front of me, and there's only one person, not three this time. I think, oh, this might be close. So I'm in my chair, and he's not in a hurry at all, the guy behind the computer. But I'm making progress, and it's a, I'm second in line. It's 10.50, and I'm thinking, I'm going to make it. And then two guys walk in with vacuum cleaners, and the guy behind the computer says, whoa, all you in, your, in those chairs, you need to leave because they need to vacuum, and then I'll be closed from 11 to 12. Come back at 12. I, and I said, are you kidding? He said, no. I said, you can't, you can't process a few more of us? I mean, come on, you know, we've been waiting. No, come back at 12. So I walk over to the pro shop, and I know one of the guys behind the counter, and there's another guy I didn't know, and I'm a little steamed. And I said, what's going on? You know, I told him the story and everything, and I said, where do I go to file a complaint? The guy said, well, if you file a complaint, they just may not give you a pass and let you on the base. Well, that did it. I said, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> no, I really didn't. But what I, did, what I did was said, whatever happened to public servants? You know, I pay taxes. We pay you guys a salary. And, and we expect a little service around here. And the other guy said, I agree with you. But this guy turned around and just looked the other direction. And I, I calmed down. And I knew Dee would be telling me, Ron, choose your battles. If... If we're supposed to be a witness for Christ, if Paul had had a wife, he may not have said that to the high priest. I don't know, you know. His cause was a little nobler than mine. He was there for the hope of the resurrection, and I was trying to get a pass to get on base to play golf. But, but the point is, sometimes when we lose it, sometimes when we say things that we really shouldn't say, it's because we're under pressure. And we shouldn't do that. We need to repent of that. But you know something? We shouldn't beat ourselves up continually about that and feel like we're done. Because we can bounce back from that. We're in a trial. Things happen. We can move forward. And we need to understand, though, that that's a temptation when we're under trial. 
Another thing that happens when we've been beaten up and we're down in our quest to live for the Lord is it seems like everybody's out to get us. Did you ever feel that way? I think Paul did, and maybe with good reason. It says in verse 12, When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation and we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near this place. And you know what? The chief priests and the council agreed to that. Isn't it amazing how unspiritual and unscrupulous this religious body had become? By the way, those 40 that had taken a vow to kill Paul before, he ate, before they ate or drank anything, they weren't really going to starve. The rabbis had some provisions for breaking a vow. In fact, four of them. They said you could break a vow if it was a vow of incitement, if somebody else had incited you to make the vow. Or if it was a vow of exaggeration, if you'd overstated the case. You could break a vow, the rabbis said, if it was a vow made in error. Or if there was a vow in which you were restrained from carrying it out. So they had plenty of loopholes. They weren't in any real danger here. But then there was a leak. Word got out from that council to Paul's sister who lived in Jerusalem and her son, which would have been Paul's nephew, who then went to the barracks and told Paul about it. And Paul called the centurion nearby over and said, this young man has something to report to the commander. Would you please take him to him? So he did. And Paul's nephew told the commander the story. He said, the Jews are going to ask you to bring him down to the council tomorrow, but it's a trick. They're going to set an ambush for Paul and kill him. And so it says that the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Paul should have been able to count on these people. They were the ruling body of the Jews. They represented Judaism. But instead, they were trying to kill him. Here he is, having been beaten, almost scourged. He is in chains. He knows the Romans aren't his friends. And now his fellow Jews are trying to kill him. Does it get any worse than that? And he's thinking, everybody's against me. I think that in a situation where we are under trial, we can look at every circumstance that way. We can see in every person's actions wrong motives and assign those motives and think everybody's against me here. I read about a, a, a mom who went into her son's room one Sunday morning and she's trying to wake him up and says, get up, son, get up. You've got to get to church. Church starts in less than an hour. He says, I'm not going to church today. She says, why not? He says, the people over there are mean. Sometimes they talk about me. Uh, I've you know, even seen postings on Facebook about me from some of those people. Tell me one good reason why I should go to church. She said, well, the scripture says that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 
And you always feel better when you go to church. And besides, son, you're the pastor. <laughs> Sometimes even pastors feel under siege, right? Everybody's against me. Huh? Thankfully, I haven't felt that way. You guys are really good to me. But we can feel that way when we're under trial. And uh, we need to realize maybe it's not quite as bad as I've thought. And when, one other thing. Sometimes when we're seeking to live for the Lord and we're beaten up, uh, and we know that what's ahead of us looks, well, like we're facing a fearful and daunting future. I think Paul could have had those thoughts. I mean, would the commander even believe his nephew? And if he didn't believe what his nephew had to report, he was doomed. He knew it. And what would happen otherwise? I mean, to be in the hands of the Romans... As I say, they're sure when he's friends. Well, here's what the commander did. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Count them up, that's 470 people to accompany the Apostle Paul. They were to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Well, that's 63 miles away. But this commander did not want to risk having a Roman citizen killed under his watch. And so he wanted to whisk him out of town from 9 o'clock that evening. It says, and he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, this is the commander's name, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. And in the letter, and Luke records it, he told the story. He told how, how he'd found this man, Paul, in the temple courts and he was being beaten, but he rescued him because he realized he was a Roman citizen. That's not exactly the order in which it took place. He didn't find out he was a Roman citizen until he was about ready to flog him up in the barracks, but he wanted to make himself look good. And then he said, so when they made these accusations against him and then they were going to kill him, I immediately sent him to you, most excellent Felix, so that you could have his accusers come and they could make their case before you. So here's Paul, locked up, thinking about what the future holds, and he could have had all kinds of fearful thoughts. I'll bet he probably did. And I think that they may have even been beyond what ultimately happened. And I think that happens to us. Sometimes when We've been beaten up and we're trying to live for the Lord and it seems like people are against us. Uh, and we anticipate what may happen. We're so fearful. And we exaggerate those fears. And especially in the night, they get even worse. And we're listening to our fears rather than to the Lord. And sometimes they're just imagined fears, okay? Things that, oh my goodness, this could happen. I, I heard this week on uh, NPR a young interviewer, a scientist who was talking to uh, the person who was interviewing her about climate change. And uh, she was saying, well, the government isn't even telling us what we really could do to change climate. Oh, what's that? She said, well, children. We, we could stop having children. And we need to think about that. And the interviewer just went on like that was all normal. And I reflected and remembered Back in the early 70s, I was working construction then, when my boss had read the book, it was a bestseller, 
by a Stanford professor back then by the name of Paul Ehrlich called The Population Bomb. And in that book, he said, that it was written in 1968, that by the 1970s and 80s, there would be mass starvation in America and beyond that would cause chaos all over the world. Well, it really didn't happen. But he injected fear, and my boss bought it, and he was talking about and the ultimate conclusion was, stop having children. I thought, that's fascinating. The Bible says children are a gift from him, from the Lord. In fact, we had a dedication of one of those little gifts earlier in one of the earlier services. And I thought, that's just like the enemy. Create all kinds of fear and all kinds of projection. Forget climate gate and the facts. Let's think of the worst things that can happen and be controlled by those fears. Some of you heard this last week that if North Korea could launch a missile, a nuke, and it'd be here in 20 minutes. What should we do about that? Uh, Jerry Hubbard, our administrator, and I were talking about it. How do you prepare for that? I said, well, if I had 20 minutes and I knew it had been launched, I think I'd go tell as many people about Jesus as possible, so you better put your trust in him. We need to be doing that anyway. But seriously, are we going to live under that fear? We can't do anything about that. What we can do is trust the Lord and in our circumstances do what we can but leave those things that are out of our control to Him and walk in faith. Some of you have real trials you're experiencing right now and it might be uh, a, a relational situation, a marriage that's not going well, um, a relationship that looks like it's going south, maybe health concerns, Maybe a diagnosis in your own life or the life of someone you love. Or maybe it's a financial situation and you're in the midst of that trial right now. Those are real issues. And there are some things that we can do about those things, and we should, but still we shouldn't be controlled by fear and exaggerating those fears. We need to be governed by faith in the Lord because He can do something about it. So it was in the midst of all of this that something happened in the midst of that trial that infused courage into Paul, and I want us to see it because it can bring this same courage into our lives. When we're beaten up in our quest to live for Christ, we'll find renewed courage if we hear his voice. Verse 11, right in the midst of the chapter, it says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. When Paul was at his lowest, and he may have had all these doubts and fears, the Lord was right there speaking to him. Now, it hadn't worked out as Paul had hoped or planned, but what was Jesus saying? Be courageous, Paul. I've got a plan. I can use these circumstances and accomplish my purpose through your life. And that's good news. And so in our lives, when it hasn't worked out as we've hoped or planned, he has a plan. He can use even those things in our lives. But we have to hear his voice. Paul was down, but he was listening. He wasn't in that prison situation watching endless hours of television. He wasn't uh, checking his emails or sending texts. Um, he probably didn't even have a smartphone. He, he was 
smart enough, wise enough to listen to the Lord. He was probably praying. And he heard the Lord assure him and tell him, I've got a plan even in this circumstance. I believe that we so often get distracted when we're under siege, when we're in a trial, and we distract ourselves intentionally. But we need to take some time and listen for his voice. He's told us in his word he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's told us that he'll be with us wherever we go. We can believe his word and we can also listen for his still, small voice in those times of prayer before him. And just through the day, in the midst of that trial, knowing that he's saying, take courage. I can use you even in this circumstance. In fact, even maybe more powerfully. Paul was going to be given a platform in Rome that he would never otherwise have had. And Christ's purpose would be accomplished. Earlier we sang, I will remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. If we're listening for his voice, even in the midst of a trial, we'll be confident that we'll see his goodness. And others will see it in us and through us. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, thank you for the courage that you give to us as we believe your words and stand upon them. Lord, we don't want to live in denial of the real trials that we experience, but we want to live in faith and uh, move forward, not uh, because we have no fear, but, but in spite of our fear, trusting in you. Lord, whatever's happening in each of our lives, help us to choose you, to choose that focus, you and your promises as our focus. I pray this in your name. Amen.